The Athletic. Good morning. Welcome to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. It's Monday, 17th of July. I'm Tim Spears, and today we're asking... It's official. Lionel Messi is an Inter-Miami player. But why? They tried to put together a deal that would create incentives that were long-term and not just over the life of the playing contract. As Manchester United prepare to welcome Andre Anana, are they about to say farewell to Harry Maguire? It's difficult to be a leader when you're on the sideline. And with the Women's World Cup starting on Thursday, we check in with how the tournament is shaping up. There's already this sense of, okay, this is going to be, <laughs> this is going to be a show. This is the Daily Football Briefing with Tim Spears. The biggest open secret in football has finally been revealed. Lionel Messi, one of the greatest players in the history of the game, has signed with Inter Miami. Those behind the deal hope the arrival to MLS of the 36-year-old Messi, who was unveiled as a Miami player at the club's stadium in Fort Lauderdale last night, will herald a new chapter in the league's history. Messi turned down a return to Barcelona and an extremely lucrative offer from Saudi Arabia. It's a huge deal. Paul Tenorio has all the details behind it and how it happened, and he joins me now. Paul, what's the reaction been in Miami to this announcement? Yeah, excitement. You've seen at the facility where Messi has been coming and going even ahead of his announcement, fans waiting outside the gate to run after his car to try to get autographs. People in in Little Havana here in Miami, excited. People in Little Buenos Aires as well, obviously very excited. Messi's been seen at restaurants and in, in grocery stores. So there's certainly a lot of excitement about it. I think now that it's finally official and that he'll be stepping on the field, it adds this new layer of of it's actually a reality. Obviously, there's a huge story behind this extremely exciting and important transfer. Can you just talk us through the way it's been funded? Because obviously, you know, this is no ordinary transfer. No, absolutely not. And I think they had to find creative ways to compensate a player who was going to need compensation at the very top, literally the highest levels of this game. And when you're competing against the money that was being offered from Saudi Arabia, which was reportedly above $1 billion, they were never going to match that financially. So they tried to put together a deal that would kind of create incentives that were long-term and not just over the life of the playing contract. So he'll get an equity stake in Inter-Miami, that team has been valued at $585 million. That was before Messi signed. That's before their billion-dollar stadium opens. A partnership with Apple is a part of this deal. Fanatics, which sells all of the MLS gear here in the United States, and Adidas, with whom Leo Messi already had a lifetime contract, have both also created deals with Messi with incentives tied to the revenue he drives here in North America. All of that is in addition to the actual salary Messi will be making. So Inter-Miami's owner, Jorge Mas, said his compensation will be somewhere between 50 to 60, maybe even 70 million, depending on how you value the stake in Inter-Miami. But that's separate from the money he'll make from Apple. That's separate from the money he'll make from those other sponsors. And I think it's worth noting that that equity stake, you know, you can value it over those two and a half to three years, but it's going to keep growing over time. And that, I think, is where the real value is for Messi and that he has now been given a contract that incentivizes him to grow MLS and to grow Inter Miami because every time they grow, his compensation grows. As you say, very creatively done this transfer. But still, you know, he, he could have gone to Saudi for the money or he could have gone to Barcelona, you know, for, for the love. Why, why Miami in particular? How have they been able to pull this off away from just the numbers? Well, I wrote a piece on the behind the scenes of how this deal came together. And in that, 
part of Jorge Mas's pitch to Messi when he was trying to convince him to come to the United States was tied to two different things. The first was the longevity of this deal. Again, it's about having a stake in American soccer and the growth of American soccer. The second part was about family. Leo Messi already has a home here in Miami. It's a nine-hour flight to Buenos Aires, much closer than Barcelona, than Saudi. And the idea was that this could be a hub for the Messi family. This could be a place that they called home adjacent to, obviously, their home in Rosario. So what happens next, Paul? When can uh, fans first see him don the the pink shirt of Miami? Well, he'll, quote, first be eligible for selection on July 21st in a League's Cup game against a Mexican team, Cruz Azul. It's a new tournament that exists here in the United States between Major League Soccer and Liga Mekis, the league in Mexico. So he'll have a chance to debut in that game. I expect we'll see him. Apple's putting quite a good amount of resources into broadcasting that first game July 21st, and then he'll play again July 25th against Atlanta United in that tournament. Uh, we'll see how Inter-Miami does. If they don't win those first two games and they get knocked out, it might be a blessing in disguise. They'll have a month or so to get ready before the league kicks off again in, on August 20th. But we're just about four or five days away from seeing Messi step on the field for the first time. Manchester United are closing in on the signing of Inter Milan goalkeeper Andre Anana. The 27-year-old Cameroon international looks set to sign a five-year contract in a move which will see United pay the Italian club a fee of around £40 million. Anana will replace David De Gea, who's just left Old Trafford at the end of his contract after 12 years with the club, as United's number one goalkeeper, with manager Eric Ten Hag looking to rebuild his squad for next season. That includes changing the club's captain, with defender Harry Maguire revealing on social media on Sunday that after talks with Ten Hag, he's had the captaincy stripped from him, a move Maguire said he was extremely disappointed with. So, what does that mean for Maguire's future with United? And when will Anana's signing be announced? I'm joined by our correspondent Laurie Whitwell to tell us more. Laurie, we'll start with Maguire. Why has he lost the captaincy? Um, he's not in the team. Um, it's difficult to be a leader when you're on the sidelines a lot of the time. He started the first two matches of last season under Eric Ten Hag, but then they didn't go to plan and he only started six Premier League matches after that. So Ten Hag has made the call to remove the captaincy from him. Uh, the expectation, I suppose, is that Bruno Fernandes will get it. He he stepped in for the majority of last season. Uh, Ten Hag's told Maguire in face-to-face talks. Um, but yeah, I think he realised that he wasn't his starting centre-back. So it's, it, it's hard to give that guy the captaincy you know he's behind uh, Lisandro Martinez Rafael Varane Luke Shaw even uh, and also uh, Victor Lindelof he played towards the end of last season so that's why Eric Tenaga has made the decision to take the captaincy off Harry Maguire West Ham is said to be interested in signing Maguire what are the chances of that happening? Yeah, this has been uh, spoken about quite a bit. Um, the difficulties are, though, the transfer fee. Would West Ham match what United would want for Harry Maguire, even though you know he's uh, into the last two years of his contract and, and hit 30 and not in the team? I think United will still want to try and recruit some decent uh, money for him, 20 million, 30 million perhaps. Um, will West Ham go to that level? And also his wages, uh, now he's in the Champions League, he's earning £190,000 a week. So, you know, the negotiations to see that he might uh, forego some of that salary if he were to go to West Ham he won't pay in that kind of salary um, is something to be decided upon and of course the other big news with United is the prospective signing of Andre Anana seems like it's getting pretty close now when do you expect the deal might be finalised we reported on Sunday afternoon uh, personal terms were set to be agreed and then they were um, on Sunday evening so that's a big 
uh, aspect to the uh, transfer saga that was being negotiated. Um, there was quite a lot of talks that happened uh, and eventually they've reached a conclusion. Um, every single bit of this transfer, United are checking with the finance team to see if they can make it work with FFP, um, whether that's a negotiating tactic or whether that's really genuine. Um, I suppose only the guys in the accounts know absolutely. But yeah, that means that therefore the only thing left to sort is the transfer fee within to I'm told that there's still a little bit of uh, negotiation to be had, but I would expect that deal to get wrapped up in the next you know, 24, 48 hours. And the idea is that Onana joins Manchester United on their pre-season tour in New York, where I am right now. Yeah, the flight is on Wednesday from Edinburgh for United. Uh, he, he might have to join up a little bit later than that. It depends how quickly United can come to an agreement and then sort his medical and sort his visa. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a deal that's going to happen. You're listening to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. The Women's World Cup kicks off in just three days' time. Teams from 30 nations are currently descending on Australia and New Zealand, who will co-host the month-long tournament, the largest in women's football history. New Zealand face Norway in the opening match on Thursday. That's 8am UK time or 3am Eastern time in the US, followed by Australia versus the Republic of Ireland three hours later. Excitement is building down under, so to find out how final preparations are going and who the favourites are for the tournament, I'm joined by our women's football writer, Meg Linehan, who is out in New Zealand following the US team. Meg, how are things in New Zealand looking ahead of the big kickoff? There must be real excitement for what feels like another huge moment for the sport. I will tell you, as soon as you land in the Auckland airport, you know that there's a World Cup on, which feels like such a night and day difference from France. I mean, you come out of the customs area in the Auckland airport and there is a full-on installation from the World Cup. There is no missing that you are now very much in the zone of this tournament. And being around the city, being downtown, there are banners everywhere. There is this uh, just a very clear sense that a major tournament is happening. I actually went up to the stadium to pick up my tournament credential. And the stadium is not quite there yet, but there's already this sense of, okay, this is going to (laughs) be, this is going to be a show. So Eden Park is hosting the New Zealand the first uh, opening match of the tournament and the vibes here are already really, really good. The weather, honestly, better than I expected. And I think everybody is just ready to get the show on the road. So the U.S. have won the last two World Cups and will start as favourites, but who else should we be looking out for? The U.S. Women's National Team have obviously won the last two World Cups, 2015, 2019, two very different journeys through the those two World Cups. 2023, I think the expectations, obviously the the odds are in the U.S. women's favor, but I think that this is a much wider open field. Now, we said the same thing in 2019, and that's not really the way that that tournament felt, but I think this time around really will be different. I mean, just even the way that this bracket has played out, I think, is going to make it very challenging. Obviously, England is a threat, but Germany, to me and and to a number of other colleagues at The Athletic, a lot of us are looking at Germany coming off of that runner-up position at Euros, having young talent like Lena Oberdorf, but also someone like Alexandra Pop, right, who missed the final at the Euros and should very much be a factor for Germany this go-around. But there are so many potential contenders. You could give me one of eight, nine, ten teams, and I'd say, sure, they could win this World Cup right now. Um, What about the hosts, Australia and New Zealand? Are there any expectations they'll do well? I think Australia, obviously... Really, they've been in great form. They just beat France in their final game up in Melbourne. So I think Australia has a really good shot 
of making their way through this tournament. And obviously, you know, they did well at the Olympics as well. Australia also has Sam Kerr, who is one of the most talented, outrageous players we've we've seen in this game over the past decade. So really good signs for Australia for taking advantage of this moment. Now, New Zealand, on the other hand, where I am, New Zealand, through the World Cups they've been in, have never won a match in the group stage. So that is mission number one. And I think that they do have a shot of that. But, I mean, for, for New Zealand, in my in my opinion, a win, a massive step forward is getting out of the group stage. And I think that will be an uphill battle for them. But step one, obviously, their opener at this tournament and then going on from there. But they have some some good players. Ali Riley is someone that we're very familiar with in the U.S. But New Zealand really does have a climb to get out of the group stage in this tournament. Great stuff. Thanks, Meg. For more on the Women's World Cup, you can listen to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast preview episode, which is out now. And you can head to The Athletic and search for The Radar to read our guide to the 50 players you should be keeping an eye on during the tournament. Now, usually at this point in the show, you'd hear me telling you what's on television on Monday night, but there's absolutely no football on, I'm afraid. Don't worry, though. All the big pre-season games are starting this week, as is the World Cup, of course and we'll be telling you where you can watch them as the week progresses. That's all from us. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, make sure you take advantage of our latest offer. Go to theathletic.com forward slash briefing, and it's $1.99 a month for your first year. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe, and if you could drop us a review, that'd be great too. I'm Tim Spears, and The Daily Football Briefing will be back tomorrow. The Athletic.